the streets of Lisbon really come alive for St. Anthony's Day. It's one of those, those times that there are no rules. Already at lunchtime, people are in the streets eating sardines. The music is booming out loud, so already you know there's something up. Coming up, guides from Portugal take us into Lisbon's liveliest neighborhoods, including the ones that resist being gentrified. A New York architecture critic explains his fascination with Buenos Aires. Well, I found it extraordinary that an entire generation would conscientiously seek to recreate Europe in the middle of the Pampas. James Gardner has written a biography of Buenos Aires to argue that the city itself is a work of art. And Wendy Simmons helps us enjoy taking a long transatlantic flight. You know, I look at long-haul flights as uninterrupted me-time. Getting up close in Lisbon and Buenos Aires and enjoying the flight over. It's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. If you like to explore historic cities with funkier, festive neighborhoods, we've got two for you to choose from in the hour ahead. Tour guides from Portugal will help us navigate the street life and the tangle of cobbled lanes and lookouts in their capital as we get acquainted with the neighborhoods of Lisbon. And an architecture critic finds a lot to like in the faded charisma of Buenos Aires. But first, writer Wendy Simmons returns to travel with Rick Steves to help us look forward to our next long airplane flight in coach. As a photographer and as a contributor to Huffington Post, Wendy has traveled a lot. So far, she's been to 85 countries. She doesn't dread the overseas flights at all. In fact, she joins us now with her tips on enjoying your next flight. Wendy, thanks for being here. Sure, my pleasure. So you write that long-haul flights can be more fun than short ones. <laughs> That's a pretty good trick. How so? How so? <laughs> you know, I, I travel all the time, as you said, and I've come to really not like short flights. They feel long, only they're not, so I can't get anything done. And instead, you know, I look at long-haul flights as uninterrupted me time. Hmm. Just 10, 12 hours of time where I don't have any guilt Uh, that I should be doing something else. And instead, I can use the time to do all the things I want to do that I never seem to have time for when I'm on the ground. So that takes a little bit of intention and thinking ahead. It does. In fact, I do the same thing. When I'm planning a trip to Europe and I know my departure's a week out, I've actually got a little list of things I'm going to do during the flight because I will get Mm -hmm. nine hours of me time. What are some of your uh, me time activities that make that flight actually a blessing? Well, you know, it can be fun stuff, and it can also be stuff that I just have to get taken care of that I never have time to do. So, you know, for example, it's a great time. I listen to a lot of music. I love music, and I am always frustrated that I can't find the song I feel like listening to or playlists and that type of thing. So it's a great time to clean out my iTunes library and get rid of music I don't like or create playlists. It's a great time to go through my email inbox and just finally clear it out. You don't have Mm -hmm. to be online to do that. Those things take a long time, and our, our lives Ugh. are so busy and never get around and to it. they're so tedious, and who wants to do that on a weekend, <laughs> you know? For me, a, a related thing would be uh, all the piles of photos I've got packed into my iPhone. You can just go through and cull them down. Exactly. It's the perfect time to do all the stuff you don't want to waste time doing during the weekend or at night. Or and it then, can be you know, frivolous also. You can just do something that you wouldn't normally invest time in otherwise. Absolutely. You know, I'll do things like if I've always wanted to read about the history of some place or I've been wanting to learn a few key phrases in the language of whatever country I'm going to, you know, that's the perfect time to catch up on movies or a season of television shows. Yeah, You, you can know, catch up on a whole season of, of whatever or watch a movie Absolutely. that you wouldn't really pay to see. Exactly. Those are exactly the kind of things. So it's really about mindset. 
Or watch a movie that your partner wouldn't want to see with you. Right, exactly. (laughs) Or the ones you'd be so embarrassed to ask anyone to go watch with you if you're anywhere else. I love to walk up and down the aisle and just look at the way people are spending their time and see how they're really getting into all that trash on the screen. I mean, I've watched some of the most embarrassing movies ever (laughs) (laughs) on airplanes that I would be humiliated if anyone knew. But it's the perfect time. And I think, you know, people go onto airplanes dreading it. And if you just, you know, if you make a few simple changes and you bring a neck pillow and you dress in layers and you take your shoes off and you have a glass of wine and you sort of look at the airplane as your, you know, your personal private space, albeit it's not comfortable, but it's not permanent. I know people that would... They would travel less in order to go first class, and it right. makes no sense at all to me. I don't makes know how much no more. Sense. Yeah, I, I think you pay five or six hundred dollars more, a hundred dollars an oh hour God, or something least. at least yeah. to sit in first yeah. class, and it just makes no sense to me because what you can do is you can creatively work to make your coach seat feel a little more elegant, and there's ways to sure. do that. I always say I, I would rather sit in coach with my noise reduction headphones than to sit in mm-hmm. business without them because the rumble of the airplane is it's just exhausting to me and I can have my own little cone of silence and when I put my headphones on, nobody talks to me and I do have that me time. I remember this interview that uh, the CEO of Spirit Airlines did one time after a, a poll came out ranking them dead last in customer service and seat size and foot space and all these other statistics. And he basically said, listen, we get you from place to place really cheap so you can spend the money where you're going. And I thought, you know, what a brilliant response. And that's how I look at it. The airplane isn't part of the vacation. It's to get me to the vacation. Right. Affordably, and, so you have money to right. get a nice dinner exactly. and a guide when and you're I in that And I can suck it up and <laughs> sit on a plane uncomfortably for 13 hours so I have an extra $1,000 when I get wherever it is that I'm going. You know, I've long said if I land in Europe or wherever I'm going safely on the day I hope to, it's been a huge success. I can send a, right. thank, a thank you note to the president of that airline. But, but let's talk about being stuck in coach and making it feel a little nicer. You mentioned uh, bring a neck pillow. Yeah. I don't even understand how people can sleep on a plane without an inflatable neck pillow. And a lot of people bring the, you know, the hard, the beanbag kind that they have to carry around the airport. The inflatable ones are equally comfortable, I promise Mm -hmm. you. And then that way, when you arrive wherever you're going, you can deflate them and put them in your suitcase. And it's not an extra thing that you've got to carry along. As you said, bring your own headphones. They're so much better quality. They don't hurt your ears like the ones that they give you in coach. I always bring warm socks. Uh, You know, your feet are freezing. They keep the airplane so cold. But on the other hand, you know, wear layers. That way you're controlling the temperature, not the airplane. You can get cold on a flight, especially if you're sitting next to a window. And to take your shoes off is nice, but you you need warm socks. And you you almost could have slippers or something. But one way to keep your, your feet warm but not stuck in shoes. And you can make your whole body comfortable. Take off your belt. It's like pajamas almost. You know, when I'm on a long-haul flight overnight, I always wear like stretch pants and, you know, sweat clothes, basically. I don't really care if I don't look that great on an airplane. For me, it's all about comfort and making sure that I'm as comfortable as possible in my seat. So I'll bring usually like a pashmina so I can use that as either a headrest or a blanket around myself. Mm-hmm. I assume they're giving me nothing. So I bring right. whatever it is <laughs> that I need to be comfortable. I bring a scarf, and I, a scarf I find very nice. Even if I'm going to a hot destination at a hot time of year where I'd never use the scarf, I find the scarf really a godsend on the flight. Absolutely. And, you know, also I've purchased, they have these small travel blankets that you can buy for like $15 or $10, and I've purchased a bunch of those that are inexpensive enough that if I really get stuck and I don't have enough room to carry it back, I don't feel that bad leaving it mm-hmm. wherever I am. 
And, you know, I also find that part of the thing about business class that makes it more comfortable is the ability to put your feet up. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I never check baggage. I usually have a small, you know, duffel that I put up above and then a small backpack or smaller carry-on that I put below the seat in front of me. And usually once the plane takes off, I pull that out and I use that as a footrest. And that alone makes a huge difference, yes. just being able to have your feet elevated. Great idea. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Wendy Simmons, and she's helping us to enjoy a, a journey in coach with her top tips for making the most in modern air travel. Wendy's the author of the book called My Holiday in North Korea. That was a long flight, I would imagine. Her website is wendysimmons.com. Wendy, when you were traveling all the way to Korea from the United States, did you fly through uh, Japan or what? I flew through Beijing. Beijing. How long of a flight was that? Like 14, 15 hours or something. So that's a long enough flight where your toes actually swell up. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that's why I wear compression socks. I started wearing compression socks a few years ago. They make me feel like an old person, but they actually are really good. They're really helpful. You know, your body, Mm -hmm. it's different. If you're on a plane for 12 or 13 hours compared to nine hours, it really is different. And you need to prepare for that. I think you got to make a point to get up and walk around. That's that's really important. It's really important. And drink a lot of water and... But, you know, I also, I think that people who say, you know, don't drink alcohol on the plane or all those kinds of things, you know, I don't ascribe to that. I don't think you should get blasted. But mm-hmm. having a glass of wine and sort of enjoying the flight and watching a movie, all that type of thing, whatever you need to do to make yourself comfortable and have the time pass, I'm all for. But you should definitely drink water, get up and walk around. And I sleep. I sleep a lot on planes. You'll function you, you better. Know, if you even get three you hours will. of sleep, you'll function better that first day uh, in another hemisphere. And, you know, yep. bundle up, stay warm, put the seatbelt above your blanket so the flight attendant doesn't need to wake you up to see if you're wearing your seatbelt. Let your seatmate know that you're going to be sleeping and you don't want to be woken yep. up. And when it's all set, good night. <laughs> Precisely. And I'll tell you, the other thing I do, and I've been traveling a long time, is the second I get on the plane... I changed my watch and my Mm. phone to the new time zone. Very smart. And I start living in the new time zone on the plane. That is so, so important. A lot of people keep their clock at America time, and then three days into their trip, they're saying, oh, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I must be exhausted. Well, no wonder, you know. Right. If I'm supposed to be asleep in the new country, I'll try to make myself go to sleep so that I function on the right time zone when I arrive wherever it is I'm arriving. Oh, sleep is the best medicine for me when when I'm abroad. Wendy Simmons is helping us look at the bright side of a long airplane flight. Wendy's a frequent traveler who posts photos and blogs from her adventures at wendysimmons.com. She also writes about a surreal tour she took a few years ago in her book called My Holiday in North Korea. You can hear more about that in the Travel with Rick Steves archives in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Look for program number 479 from April 1st, 2017. Now, a big question for a lot of people is the aisle or the window. You've spent a lot of time up in the air. Uh, what's your advice? Is it Does it depend on the individual? Yeah, I mean, it depends on if you're someone who has to get up a lot, you've got to be on the aisle. I don't like disturbing other people. Mm-hmm. I'm very sensitive about that, and I don't have any trouble getting up for other folks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the window is certainly more comfortable if you're someone who likes to lean against something, but that's where the neck pillow comes in. I find the window to be colder so I'm an aisle person. People in the middle, I don't, I, I can't even understand that mentality. They've just got to be the least organized people on the planet. <laughs> and uh, end up in the middle. You know, one way to end up in the middle is insist on sitting next to your partner. Now, now yeah. that can make sense for a lot of people, but you do have the option of splitting up and then you each get an aisle or you each get a window. Uh, That's how my family travels. We all get aisle seats near each other. And, you know, I've written about this as well. 
I don't know why one person would suffer. It's just temporary. You're just on a flight for a few hours. You know, I understand if it's small children, you know, and that can't be helped or someone who needs care. But mm-hmm. if you're two adults traveling, there's no reason why one person needs to be uncomfortable. And if you, you want know, me time, me time is not us time. Right. Me time is very right. selfish, you know, and I <laughs> exactly. think that might be a good precondition. Look, darling, yeah. I love you very much, and I'm so glad we're going on this vacation, <laughs> but I'm, my life is busy, and I've got six hours of me time, and I need exactly. that. <laughs> so we can both get our aisle. Yep, yep. Good advice. Wendy Simmons, thank you so much for sharing, and uh, best my wishes pleasure. with your Huffington Post work and, and, you. and with your travel writing. Thank you so much. Maybe really I'll see you on, in the aisle on the next uh, transatlantic sure flight. <laughs> okay, bye, Wendy. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Coming up, we'll explore two great cities that are well worth the voyage. An architecture critic looks at the enchanting character of Buenos Aires in Argentina in just a bit. But first, tour guides from Portugal take us into the historic neighborhoods of their capital, Lisbon. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 at Travel with Rick Steves. Ships once sailed from its port to rule an empire that stretched from South America to Africa and Asia. Today, when you visit Lisbon, its vintage trolley cars rattle up and down hilly streets. They take you past bird-stained statues and grand plazas into intimate neighborhoods where multicolored tiles, wrought iron balconies, and terracotta roofs set the scene. We're joined now on Travel with Rick Steves by two tour guides from Lisbon to introduce us to its picturesque neighborhoods, Cristina Duarte and Rafael Pereira. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. So Lisbon feels to me like a collection of neighborhoods. How would you, Raphael, uh, define Lisbon in terms of neighborhoods? What are the big neighborhoods we should be aware of? Well, of course, there are the traditional neighborhoods like Alfama, Moreria. Then there is the Baixa, which is the neighborhood that symbolizes the reconstruction of the city after the big 1755 earthquake. And then there is Bairroalto, which is a neighborhood that is multidimensional. It has a very interesting historical perspective, but it's also the bohemian area of the city. Okay, so just so we can keep track of this, Lisbon has a, a grid sort of area between the hills, which is the, the downtown, and yes. that would be the Baixa, and exactly. that was destroyed in an earthquake in 1755 and rebuilt in a grid plan, which is quite striking for something from the 18th century. Yes. And then when you're looking inland, over to the right, you've got the old sailor's quarter, the Alfama, with a castle on top. And on the left, you've got the Bairro Alto. What does that mean? The high... The, the high, high neighborhood. The high neighborhood. And, and you mentioned that would be sort of bohemian and, and multidimensional. How would you describe this high neighborhood, the Bairro Alto? Well, it has a very interesting historical perspective because it is 500 years old. It was the first neighborhood to be built outside of the medieval walls back in the 1500s. And it was built differently than the city that existed before inside the medieval walls. How was it different? because it was built using ideas of urbanism. They built it not with a perfect grid, but in an orthogonal structure. So we can say, in a way, it was the first neighborhood in Lisbon since Roman times, 
where ideas of urbanism were used. What's an example of urbanism? That's interesting. What, what's something practical that it had that other towns didn't? Christina? Planning. Uh, until the 1500s, I normally say that the city happens. Oh, it no. just happens haphazard. Okay, this you have was planned. Space, you have space, you construct, right. hmm. things happen. Urban planning. Yes, and on the 1500s, it was necessary to put an order to the chaos of Alfama with the yeah, cinemas. The Alfama feels like some sort of Morocco, uh, Medina yeah, or something. Yes. The streets were done on human dimension. You don't mm-hmm. need a, that big streets for big cars because there were no cars. Right. So the streets were done by human size. You needed to be protected from the sun, from the wind, from the rain. So it was on human dimension. And on the 1500, the things changed. With the Renaissance, now you have coaches, you know, like a, okay. the carriage yeah. that uh, so took Cinderella the to the mall. Yes. <laughs> so you need to wide up the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the streets must be wider and uh, automatically you start to have a plan on the streets. You have to construct a city. You have to, you have construct, to have rules. Yes, you, rules. You don't just go narrow here no, and no, wide no, no, there no, no. because you, just, you want to have yeah. the, the carriage and go then, through. And be able to, to turn. <laughs> now, now, Lisbon was a world power in the year 1500, Vasco da Gama, Magellan, yes. and so on. Uh, you had quite an industry, I would imagine, for building ships. Do I understand there was a, like workers' quarters up in the... In they the were the, in the lower part, mm-hmm. on the nearby the river. Yeah. So from the hill of Bairro Alto to the river, all of that were shipyards. And, and they had uh, to house all, the workers somewhere. Yes. And uh, actually, our all nature and landscape, Portuguese landscape, changed because it was necessary to plant lots of pine trees in order to ensure the the material to do that construction. Oh, they actually planned mm-hmm. that also. Oh, yes. Now, things are changing because now, even in the memory of a lot of the people you'll see sitting on the balconies looking mm-hmm. out, some of the older people, they can remember, like in the Alfama, when there were no private, private plumbing. Yes. And people would run around in their pajamas in the morning up and down the streets to go to the shower. You still see some, yes. You still see some, yeah. So that actually, in some people's memory, was still the way? I still see in Alfama. Yes. You know, I walk in Alfama almost every day, and you still see people in the yeah. streets in their pajamas. You still see people cooking in the streets. They don't have plumbing. They, no, they, 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 have do. to, they have to run down. No, it's just tradition. This is very interesting. There are a lot of fountains in Alfama, yeah. and you will see people washing their dishes in the fountains. Yeah. You will see people, men... Even uh, today, sh- even in this modern in the, time. I, I see <laughs> it, and I'm 28 years old, so it's not that cannot be that old. Right. So I've seen men shaving in the fountains of Alfama. Now, what is an explanation for that? They, they have water in their house, but the community environment that still exists in Alfama, it's disappearing, Right. but it still exists. It promotes this need, this necessity that the people have to go to the streets, to live in the streets. That is something very, um, it's commonplace in Europe now that people will intentionally have a small refrigerator so they have to go to the market. They will intentionally go to shave at the fountain just so they can connect with their neighbors. Well, in Alfama, what happens in my perspective is that there is not the house in the street. I mean, the street is the continuation of the house. Yes. Yeah, it just continues. Life in the street. Continues. People have their windows open, their door opens. They set the table outside. They cook their meals with grilling. They they decorate over the street. I mean, you don't decorate your house; you decorate your street. They have their gardens. Yes, (laughs) they have the gardens in the street. It's the continuation (laughs) of your house. I always tell travelers that the best way to distinguish a person born and raised in Alfama is to look for behavior. Because if you see someone in the streets, relaxed, talking very loud as if they were in their house, 
Yeah. It's because they're from Alfama. <laughs> Alfama. It's yeah. interesting you say that because I've been going to the Alfama. This, by the way, is the, the quintessential old sailor's quarter of uh, the oldest part of Lisbon, really, with these winding streets. And a little tiny lane will suddenly become a series of stairs and steps uh, built before there were cars there ever. I remember even as a kid, people just sitting in the street like they owned it. Yeah. This was unique. This was their, their home. What's the big party in, in Alfama? It's in June for St. Anthony. St. Anthony's party. The night of the 12th of June, because mm-hmm. St. Anthony's Day is the 13th of June. And in my opinion, if you're ever thinking about doing some independent traveling in Lisbon, be in Lisbon in the 12th of June. It's 12th crazy. 12th of June? It's, yes. it's St. Crazy. Anthony. Okay, why, how is it? okay, let's say it's the 12th <laughs> of June right now. The sun just went down. What's happening? Well, you have to be in Alfama in the 12th of June. You have to go through Alfama because that was where St. Anthony was born. So imagine this neighborhood of winding, narrow streets and the entire population just packed there. Yeah. It's going to take you like 30 minutes just to go... Couple blocks. Couple blocks. <laughs> and it's one of those, those times that there are no rules. There are basically no rules. What are the activities? People are barbecuing outside, people are dancing. You music. drink wine and you eat grilled sardines, and you sing and you dance. Drink wine, eat grilled sardines, sing and dance. That sounds so fundamental. That's yes. like earth, wind, air, and fire. It's just like that. <laughs> the sun just sets, so it is in the, in the end of the afternoon, and the local people of Alfama is not yet there, because all the people that are now starting to party around 8 o'clock, they are outsiders. Where is the local people of Alfama? They are assisting to the parade that is on Liberty Avenue. On the main boulevard the of Lisbon, The main yeah. boulevard, like the Champs-Élysées of Lisbon, okay. the main boulevard, there is a huge parade in which every district, popular district of Lisbon or neighborhood, mm. goes along this parade with their own customs, with their own songs, and there is a contest so is, they are very fear about uh, and proud about. So they're going uh, yes. to do their duties yeah, to represent their, duties. their neighborhood in the big yeah. Macy's Day Parade. And then in arrive, and around midnight, everything is it's finished. So they come still dressing their costumes, and you can see if they won or not just by seeing them. Everybody's <laughs> party and say yeah. <laughs> so, so and so many tourists are in their hotel at ten o'clock on on June twelfth, just thinking, okay, the day is over. No, it's just no, starting. No, 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 no. No, no, no. <laughs> but they will they will quickly understand that there's something going on <laughs> yeah. because already at lunchtime uh, yeah. people are in the streets eating sardines the the music is booming out loud so already you know there's something up <laughs> This is Travel with Rick Steves we're talking with two friends and tour guides from Lisbon in Portugal Cristina Duarte Rafael Pereira and we're talking about the fun-loving neighborhoods of, of Lisbon. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Michael's calling from East Windsor in New Jersey. Michael, thanks for the call. Well, thank you, Rick. And hi, and hello to everybody. Nice to have you on board with us. What's that? Do you have a thought or a comment for Christina or Raphael? Well, just the fact that you folks are all talking about Alfama, we just love that. We were drawn back there magnetically in the three or four days we spent in Lisbon. And it's just such a joy uh, the diversity of everything that's there, the views from it, and those little lanes, and so much character. And uh, certainly uh, a couple of the restaurants that you've been recommending for years, uh, we we fell into a couple of times. I think one of your favorites is the Farul de Santa Luzia, 
And in four days we spent in uh, Lisbon, we ate there three times. And the Cataplana is as good as you say. Cataplana, that would be the bouillabaisse kind of, of Portugal. Wow. I'm so glad you ate there. And when somebody eats there three times, you got to enjoy the, the service and the food, I think. Well, we did. We had our own table. You know, we had our same server, the same table, and we'd arrive and everybody would stand up and salute us when we walked in. <laughs> I love that sort nice. of concept. You're a guest the first night, you come the second night, and you're, you're, you're a regular. Yes. We did feel like part of the neighborhood in that establishment, no question. And uh, the, whole, the whole experience in the city was delightful. We are so looking forward to going back and uh, exploring some of the other areas and and actually, one thing we have in mind is trying to settle on an area that we may want to spend a significant amount of time on, a, a month or two or three, to see what life is like there. And we're thinking maybe Madeira or maybe somewhere in the Algarve. Rafael, what would you recommend if somebody wanted to stay put in Portugal for a while? There is in the Algarve a place called Monchique. When you think about the Algarve, you think about beach. That is the touristic perspective. But if you want to get to know what normally tourists don't know, you go to Monchique. There are mountains in the Algarve, Hmm. and it's just beautiful. And if you have a car, you are 30 minutes from the beach. Hmm. But when you are there, it feels like you are four hours from the touristic area, but you're actually just 30 minutes. I've got a friend who's a retired postman from Idaho that I met in Europe, and he's retired on a postman's pension, and he's living like a king inland on the Algarve, yes. up in the hills. Yes. And he's got a beautiful place, and he's got his car, and he's got his uh, maid that comes in and cleans up for him, and he's got the whole beach right at his doorstep there. Christina, any thoughts for Michael as far as where he might want to... Well, Algarve can be quite lonely, though, quite isolated, and uh, nobody, if he goes in the wintertime. In the wintertime, yeah. It's, they are cities shut down. That, that shut down because there is, is not uh, the season. So it can be a little bit lonely, actually. Madeira, Madeira is an island where you have, there's a life over there. There's, yeah. There is a life over there. Otherwise, if he wants with a place uh, quiet, not that busy, I like Costa Vincentina, and I like uh, Villanova de Milfontes. Where where are those places? uh, In the south of Lisbon, between Algarve and and Lisbon. Michael, thanks for your call, and and best wishes on your next trip. Thank you very much. We've loved uh, your your guidance through the years. Appreciate it. All right. Happy travels. Thanks. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cristina Duarte and Rafael Pereira, and we're talking about Lisbon and uh, the the charm of the various neighborhoods. And uh, Rafael, we were talking about these neighborhoods that were very traditional, and there's still people, you know, if you know where to look, uh, shaving at the well on the on the main square. Uh, but there is a lot of gentrification going on, and this must be an, a real interesting challenge for the people of Lisbon. Do we want to go modern, or do we want to protect our our heritage? What are the challenges with gentrification uh, in the modern world coming into some of these neighborhoods? Oh, yes, I would say that uh, it's one of the most controversial subjects right now in Lisbon is uh, either this boom of tourism is positive or not because the gentrification process is happening as a consequence of the development of tourism. That is the is that reality. Right? That's a big part of the economy. Yes. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it has its positive and it has its negative for the case of Alfama, we have to understand that is a neighborhood that people that live there, they don't go to the other side of the city. A person from Alfama to go to the other side of the city, it's a, something that they do once a year. Now imagine in the last five years, you have the entire world at your doorstep. Imagine the impact that that has. That is one dimension. But let's look at the economic 
uh, dimension and the pressure that they have to leave their neighborhood because Portugal is in economic crisis and tourism is a very important part of the GDP right now. Hospitality and tourism is 18% of the GDP and the tendency is to grow. Mm-hmm. So imagine, let's have this visual idea. Imagine you have a sponge and it's very, very dry and you put it in a bucket full of water. It's going to soak up and that's Lisbon right now. Mm-hmm. Portugal is in economic crisis and all of a sudden you have all of this money coming in and what is the priority? To, mm-hmm. to soak it up. And that's what people are trying to do. It's a, an amazing opportunity to make a short-term profit. And how do you do it? Accommodation. Okay. In 2012, after the liberalization of the rental market, anyone can come buy a property. And Lisbon has very creative uh, bed and breakfasts and hostels. Uh, oh, yes. they say and right now the with the, the A-R&Bs, because most of these houses of, uh, that of the old ladies in Alfama, they were no. kind of pushed to go away. Because uh, they could, their family can make more money with the renting out the room? No. Not the family, because they, they didn't own the house. Mm. They, were, they were on lease. Oh, I see. Yeah, on lease. Oh. And they got money to get out. And in order that the owner can do the totally renew of the building. Imagine you have this building that is owned by a private owner. And you have all of this, the native population of Alfama living in this building. And this building is not in good condition. So the city hall has said that any investor can come, and if they buy the building, and if they commit to restore the building, they can evict the people that are living there. And then make some serious money. And make some yes. serious money. That's gentrification, isn't it? Yes. yes. And then the beloved black and white inlaid mosaic sidewalks. This. That's the tradition, and I understand now that people say they get slippery, and they're expensive to repair. So they're talking about replacing them with modern but not But not on the historical centers. Oh, thank no. goodness. Historical centers, it make, it, they are protected. Everything that is in a historical center is always lots of paperwork. But on the new districts, yes. They're doing that for yes. practicality. Yes. It's the yes. reality of the yes. modern world. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about the neighborhoods of Lisbon. Let's just close with one little intimate way a tourist can, from America can enjoy Lisbon without necessarily going to a famous museum, but just having a local experience. Christina. My local experience, and I always, I do it myself everywhere I go. I just find a place where I can have a, a proper coffee, uh-huh. and I sit and I just see people pass by. On a square? On a square. And that is very Portuguese because the squares to us is the outside of our homes, and it is easy to find in any square one of those old kiosks from the 1800s. And they are perfect. It's just a perfect place to be with friends and to meet other friends. Yeah. So With you, a, a bica. With a bica, a little coffee, a little espresso. <laughs> yes, yes, a little Taking little advantage of those century-old uh, and just, kiosks. And just see people pass by. Raphael, how about you? So, of course, Lisbon is known for its beautiful, charismatic yellow trolleys. So a must-do is to ride the trolley. I recommend the 28, uh, that I think is the best. Trolley number 28. So really, for Americans, we know the uh, trolleys in San Francisco and the steep hills and the cobbles and the ring-a-ling-a-ling. It's the same thing. Uh, you would take number 28? Number 28. But I would like to add something. If you take the 28 tram, you will feel like a canned sardine. You will feel like you are in a theme park attraction. That's a problem, but there is a solution. Okay? So... What you can do is you wake up a little bit early and you take the tram in the magic hour. So at sunrise, the trams are empty. You're only going to see locals commuting. You go on the tram, the sky is pink, the seagulls are hovering the city, and you have the city for yourself. So if you take the tram at half past seven, before all the tourists 
Come to the city, you can experience the trolleys like a traveler. That is a great travel tip. Cristina Duarte, Rafael Pereira, thank you so much for giving us a better understanding of your beautiful city. Lisbon, obrigado. De nada. It was a pleasure. De tão cantado que invejo Lisboa por la mora. New York-based architecture and culture critic James Gardner thinks Buenos Aires stacks up favorably against almost any of the great capitals in Europe. It's a city teeming with memories, where you quickly get a sense there's something different about this place. We'll find out why next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Hoi, ik ben Philippe Samijn, ik ben van België en ik reis met Rick Steves. I'm Philip from Belgium and I travel with Rick Steves. Ik reis met Rick Steves. Buenos Aires is one of the most architecturally interesting cities in the Western Hemisphere. The heart of the city looks like it belongs in southern Europe or France, complete with wide, leafy boulevards and a faded 19th century splendor. This grand city compels New York-based culture and architecture critic James Gardner to return often. When he was unable to find a book that explains to English speakers how Buenos Aires came to be the city it is today, he decided to write it himself. His book is called Buenos Aires, The Biography of a City. James, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. What is Argentina to South America, and what is Buenos Aires to Argentina? Argentina is one of the biggest countries in South America, and Buenos Aires is, of course, the capital of Argentina. It is one of the richest countries in Latin America, and it is the one that probably feels the most first world, right? Hmm. Most first world because it's the most affluent or it's most European feeling? I would say both. Right. You know, and I would say about Buenos Aires that it's a European city that happens to be in South America. <laughs> it feels very much like a European city. And I think that before I had gone there, I, like most Americans who travel, was oriented toward Europe. And I felt that there was something very familiar about it, something hmm. reassuringly familiar about it. You know, I love the Gran Via in Madrid. And it's mm -hmm. got all sorts of early 20th century striking architecture and uh, old sort of uh, art deco and, you know, jaw-dropping, dazzling facades and everything. And I get the sense that walking around Buenos Aires, you feel a little bit like Madrid, would you say? I think that's a very good comparison. Buenos Aires is called the Paris of South America. Mm -hmm. And the potentates of around 1880 made the conscious decision having learned from Baron Osman and what he did in Paris, mm -hmm. to recreate that to the extent of their abilities in Buenos Aires. But they learned not only from Paris. If you go there, you feel... It feels familiar, but you're not... You can't quite put your finger on hmm. what it reminds you of. So there are elements of Paris, there are elements of Madrid, perhaps, mm -hmm. of Barcelona and a number of other places. But it does have a large element of Spain, as you might expect, but also elements of uh, Italy as well. You live in New York City, but you spend a good That's part right. of your year in Buenos Aires. Uh, why Buenos Aires? What keeps you going back to that particular city? Well, the reason I started going there in the first place 18 years ago at this point is that I hate winter and I love summer, and the seasons are reversed there. So it was a good escape. Hmm. And since I'm a writer, I was able to do all my work from there. And just by going there, I, I made friends. I gained a greater familiarity with the place. 
And it's a relatively inexpensive city. It's a very comfortable city. And uh, so eventually, because it's inexpensive, I was able to buy an apartment there. So it, it just keeps getting better. It's kind of a practical thing. You're getting the best weather. It's affordable. Uh, you know, it's... Exactly, exactly. Now, your passion, it seems like from reading your book, is architecture. You approach a city as an architect. What is it about Buenos Aires architecture that you find so striking and unique? Well, I found it extraordinary, as I sort of intimated before, that an entire generation would conscientiously seek to recreate Europe in the middle of the Pampas and that they should have done it to such an extraordinary degree that a European, when he goes there, a Frenchman, when he goes there, feels as though he's in a place that is extremely familiar to him. Mm -hmm. A famous urbanist, Forestier, from Paris, arrived in Buenos Aires in the 1920s, and he said, here I feel almost as though I'm more in Paris than in Paris. <laughs> in other words, I feel this is more Parisian than Paris. You wrote that Albert Einstein has a quote from 1925, and Einstein asks, how do they manage to create out of nothing something that looks so much like Paris? Yes, I mean, that's, that was the question I tried to answer in the book, right. Buenos Aires, the biography of the city. And you said built in the middle of Pampas, what was that that you mentioned? The Pampas are, are this massive 300,000 square mile grasslands that stretch from the Andes to the Rio de la Plata, the river that mm -hmm. Buenos Aires is on, okay. then including Uruguay and the southern part of Brazil. It's this massive grasslands. It's it like the Great prairie. Plains almost, it sounds like. Exactly. So. Right it, out of the Great it, Plains, you got this amazing Paris-like city. You that's say right. more than just the architecture, you, you rave about the city's rare kinetic energy. It measures up to London or Paris or New York. Uh, yeah. What do you mean by kinetic energy and how would a visitor experience that? Well, by kinetic energy, I just mean the fact that it is vibrantly alive and there are traffic jams and honking horns and hmm. millions of people walking back and forth and buses rushing by. But one of the concepts I have in my book, one of the things that occurred to me was the idea of the infinite city. And by an infinite city, I mean a city that is not only big but sufficiently almost arrogantly proud of its heritage, that when you go there, it draws you in and causes you to think that you are at the center of the universe. It's a fiction. Mm -hmm. It's a fiction that all great cities are able to generate, but it's a fiction that only very few can pull off. I think New York can do it, London can do it, Paris, Rome. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is James Gardner. He outlines his admiration for the Argentine capital in his book, Buenos Aires, The Biography of a City. His articles on art and architecture appear in the Weekly Standard, Antiques, and the New York Times. We have a link to James's book with this week's show details at ricksteves.com radio. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Karen's calling in from Livingston in Texas. Karen, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi. What's your experience in Buenos Aires? Well, we were there about one year ago now, and we had taken a cruise around South America, ending in Buenos Aires, where we stayed for an extra, oh, about 10 days. And we rented an Airbnb apartment. And uh, was that situated in an area where you got to kind of feel the pulse of the city? 
It sure was. We were probably about 15 minutes by bus from, I would say, the center of Buenos Aires, the big area. And so each day we would take the local bus to the city center, you might say. And so it was wonderful. We, we were in an area where there were little shopping markets so we could walk over and purchase our food. I've got a teacher friend that took a sabbatical in Buenos Aires, and he just couldn't get over the charming neighborhoods and the, the little tiny parks where you just had this slice of life all around you. And it was just delighted just to be there and, and be part of it. Our apartment was on the second floor, and we had a balcony, and it overlooked one of those parks. I kind of call it a pocket park. It was probably a square block. We had never seen anything like this. This park was used from sunup to sundown, and on the outside of the park was a walking path where people would jog or walk dogs, and then inside there was an exercise area that was used by the younger more athletic person in the morning, and then middle of the day, the local seniors would come out and use the same exercise equipment. It it was the most remarkable neighborhood to be able to watch. James, how realistic is it that we travelers can go and connect with that slice of Buenos Aires that Karen's talking about? Uh, Well, it's very realistic. They have great uh, little parks in uh, Buenos Aires. They were created, most of them, by a Frenchman in the end of the 19th century, And whatever hardships Buenos Aires has endured in the past, uh, say, 50 years or so, they have always kept up their parks very well. So uh, so parks are very an adornment to the city. Karen, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Happy travels. Sid's calling from Atlanta. Hi, Sid. Have you been to Buenos Aires? And what, what was your big memory? Oh, I have been to Buenos Aires. And it was fabulous in the same ways that James Gardner is is talking. Our son had taken a a graduate internship in Chile, and so we opted to explore Argentina. And we love cities and, of course, were so blown away by the European and rich dance culture and vibrant colors, everything about it. One of the things that made it particularly special for us was that we got to go to the cathedral where Pope Francis had been a bishop, I believe, before he became Oh, Pope. that's right. That was his uh, parish before. That's right. Yeah, so we felt like we were there just at a moment in history when things were going to be changing. And the other um, ma- many delightful experiences, but the Recoletta Cemetery, for me as someone who loves art and architecture, it was just such a, an extraordinary place to, to go in and to get some feel of the history, the pride, all the things which richly adorn it. <laughs> so, James, is that the major national cemetery in the city then, or what is the Recoleta? Yeah, it's, it's not the biggest cemetery, but it's uh, the most interesting. And strangely enough, for cemeteries, it's an extremely happy place. It's probably the main tourist draw the one thing everyone who goes to Buenos Aires is going to see. Hmm. Uh, It doesn't have any greenery, strangely enough. It's not like a usual cemetery. What you have instead are, I think, something like 5,000 discrete mausoleums, Hmm. right? Each of which is done in this extravagant architectural style, ranging from Gothic to classical to Baroque to modern. Hmm. 
all around it, you have bars and restaurants. One of the best views you can get of it is from the McDonald's across the street. There's a, a mall and there's McDonald's on the fourth floor. And when you look down, you overlook this cemetery. Huh. So you're having your quarter pounder and you're just kind of marveling at the beautiful yeah. cemetery spreading up below. Well, one of the interesting things we learned is that much of the wealth that can be seen so vividly in the Recoleta Cemetery actually could be traced back to refrigeration. And since Argentina was such a beef-producing country, the fact that refrigeration could spread that beef all over the world meant many families gained enormous wealth. And so when you look at the Recoleta Cemetery, you see based on coal storage, kind of. (laughs) That's true. That's exactly right. You see, Buenos Aires is one of the most fertile countries in the world, and they have on the pampas, these vast plains, they have cattle, and the cattle reproduces itself. Every three years, it doubles in size. So they have this enormous wealth, Mm. but until the introduction of refrigeration in the 1880s, they couldn't really export it. There was nothing they could do other than to sell the hides. But with refrigeration, suddenly they could send all that to the rest of the world. And it was that which not only paid for the mausoleums in the cemetery of Recoleta, but all the great avenues and all the great Parisian architecture that you see there comes from refrigeration, I think you can say. Wow. So it's the city that beef built. Uh, You can say that. (laughs) And by the way, they have great beef. If you're a carnivore, it's a great city to be in. Great city for a carnivore. All right. And it's inexpensive beef. Very good and inexpensive. Sid, thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Buenos Aires with James Gardner, who's written the book on the city. James, when you think about the city that beef built and uh, this sort of wannabe European capital, I know your passion is architecture. You mentioned the architecture in the city is largely, quote, derivative. Can you just give us a, a quick little walk down the main boulevard and describe, just from an architecture point of view, what we're going to see? Let's say you were to go to the Plaza de Mayo, the main square. Uh, what you'd see is, first of all, the cathedral where Pope Francis, formerly Archbishop Bergoglio, used to preside. Mm. And that's a neoclassical building from 1822, more or less. Then you have the Casa Rosada, means the pink house, which is the seat of the executive branch of the government. This is associated with Evita Peron and Juan Peron, and it's where the president is now. And it's called the pink house because it's literally painted pink. That's an early stage of the Beaux-Arts architecture from around 1882. Mm -hmm. Then actually facing it, you have something called the Cabildo, which is one of the few remaining structures that has anything of the colonial period. The oligarchs of the generation of 1880 try to abolish any trace of colonialism. That means throwing off their Spanish overlords? Yeah, their independent states to 1816. The structure of the cabildo that's there now is a much smaller version of what was originally there. It's been cut down. By the way, it's been cut down to create this vast avenue called the Avenida de Macho, the May Avenue, which is this beautiful Parisian avenue. It's literally to the centimeter the same size 
as Baron Osman's avenues, and that was intentional, obviously, and it creates this great prospect where you see on one side the Casa Rosada, the pink house, and a mile to the west, you see the great Beaux-Arts Congreso, the Congress building, which is equivalent to our capital in Washington, D.C., and you could argue it's modeled upon the capital. But between those two points, you have, as I say, the Avenida de Macho, and on either side, you have these amazingly beautiful Parisian buildings. So hmm. that's the predominant style that you would see there. I would think our challenge when we go to this huge city, what's the population of Buenos Aires? Buenos Aires proper is 3 million, but right around it, you have El Gran Buenos Aires. The city itself and the environs are 13 million. So I would think you just have a guidebook, read your book and walk down the streets and you can just be wowed by the physical structure of the city. And our challenge is to humanize it. Uh, let's just finish our look at this great city by, if you could just take me on a walk, and apart from the grand boulevards and the architecture, what's an intimate experience that we might encounter together that illustrates why you're so enamored with Buenos Aires beyond even its incredible architecture? Well, the places that we've mentioned thus far are the central business areas or government areas or a, a cemetery, which is a tourist draw. But if you just walk through the streets you'll find it's a very livable place. You'll find relatively few people who speak English. In other words, you, you won't hear conversations in German or French or English as you might in Paris or London or Rome. You'll hear people speaking only Spanish. And you'll find a bookstore on every hmm. block. You'll find a bakery or two bakeries on every block. And they tend to be very good, by the way. Sometimes side by side, you wonder how the economy could sustain these two things in competition, but they've both been there for 60 years. There are an immense number of places where you can buy food, you know, whether it's a bakery, a restaurant, or a vegetable store, or a wine shop. It seems as though hmm. every second store has something to do with gastronomy. And uh, it's a very livable city. So you got you know. steakhouses, you got beautiful wine to go with the steak, you got the tango, you've got all this yes, amazing sort of architectural heritage. Uh, it sounds like a world apart. It's a cheaper sort of uh, option. It's very sensual with the, the taste treats exactly. and the love of life. Uh, and, and really just a world apart that is very accessible. It's a universe unto itself, as all great cities are. James Gardner, Buenos Aires, The Biography of a City. Thanks a lot for sharing your insight into a city that a lot of us could appreciate a little better. Thank you for having me. You bet. Argentina. Buenos Aires. El puerto de Santa Maria del Buenaire. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for their studio help this week. James Gardner explains to Rick how nostalgia has become an institution in Buenos Aires in a program extra. You can hear it in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.